Well, good morning. Can you tell I sound a little different? <laughs> uh, so bear with me. You know, you never know how a voice is going to recover when you've had been fighting something over several days, but uh, I have enough to speak and the microphone to carry the rest. And uh, so uh, just bear with the sound of it. I'm sorry for the quality of my voice in this morning. But uh, if you pray, you're welcome to pray as I preach. So uh, thank you very much. My name is Tony. I'm pastor here. And, uh, and I am very thankful to open the Word of God with you all this morning as we continue to study the life of a person whose knees were truly bent in worship and in prayer uh, towards the God of the universe, uh, Yahweh, which was what the Jews understood his name to be. And so we're going to go into the Word today and understanding what it means to be persuasive in today's culture based on some things we can learn by observing in Daniel's life. So I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to Jeremiah 29. And if you do not have a Bible, or ushers are walking up the aisle right now. Be glad to provide you one. And the page number for that Bible is page 736, is where you'll find Jeremiah. Persuasion. It's very easy to assume that persuasion is, is to say somebody's persuasive would be to say they're, they're ga- very good at crafting their words and, and making good points. Uh, but I will tell you that the greatest act of persuasion is actually reputation. You know, you can hear somebody very crafty. Uh, thank you, Brad. You can hear somebody very crafty with words be able to offer persuasive things, but you give somebody that's saying those same words with a reputation you respect and that proves that their life is much more than just their words. It's very persuasive. Consider in your past where maybe your reputation wasn't yet established uh, when you were younger. Uh, For me, when I was growing up, I had the reputation of dating and getting uh, into relationships, committed relationships with girls, only to see those relationships usually end between two to four months. Now, I wasn't doing anything necessarily wrong in those relationships. It wasn't uh, something where I would say I'd be ashamed for people to see what was going on in those relationships. But I had commitment issues, if you will. And so, over time, that reputation among my friends was like, yeah, good luck if you date Tony, you know, don't expect to be with him very long. And uh, so based on that reputation, I wouldn't have been one likely sought out for relational advice, if you can only imagine. And so later, as I got into college, some of that began to change, and I didn't date a whole lot in college. I was much more focused on ministry opportunities. However, uh, as I got into youth ministry, um, full-time, I had met a girl in Pennsylvania. At this point in time, I am a youth pastor in the Kansas City area, and uh, I met a girl while visiting my parents in eastern Pennsylvania, and, uh, and over time, through correspondence, not through texting, uh, but rather through writing letters and actually signing a signature, which a lot of people don't know how to do today, um, and then, and additionally, we would do phone calls and actually talk to one another. As time went on, we became engaged. And as a result, I began to look for positions in Pennsylvania. Well, as we're engaged, you know, all my friends, because I'm from Kansas, they're all buying tickets to fly to our wedding that was supposed to be in December. And, uh, and I remember a couple of my friends just saying, now, this is going to stick, right? So uh, about a month later, after becoming engaged, the engagement broke off. Now, in this context, it had nothing to do with my commitment issues, but my reputation really caved in on me because I had had friends that bought airplane tickets. They weren't as able to get out of those back in the 90s at the time. And, And so I heard the complaints like, Tony, you have got to figure this out. Even my own family uh, were concerned that I did not know how to stay with a girl. But in this case, I genuinely, mutually, we we both agreed that God was calling us to two different places. 
uh, with our lives. And so we, were, we felt like we were being obedient. But because of my reputation, I couldn't persuade my family members or friends that we were making a decision based on true leadership of the Lord. So as you develop a reputation, certain things, even if you've moved on, it's hard to undo that, especially if you've lived in Lancaster County for most of your life. Any reputations you might have had uh, in your teen years, it's hard to let go of those sometimes. And uh, for other people to see that you have actually moved on. So as time went on, I obviously met my wife as I ended up in a church in Pennsylvania. And, uh, and when I, my friends were uh, invited to come to the wedding, they made sure to not buy their tickets until about four weeks in advance. <laughs> so, uh, and, and I've now been married for 23 years, so uh, I feel like I've figured out the relational commitment side of things. But... Uh, as time goes on, you start learning how God has gifted you or your passions start playing out. And uh, as youth ministry years uh, grew, uh, a couple of reputations began to be developed in my leadership as a youth pastor. One was that I could build teams and, uh, and, and, and get a lot of people engaged into the particular mission. But another one was that we developed a very strong uh, ministry built on small groups. Now, in this church, we refer to them as life groups, but in the, in the church that I was serving at before, small groups was a big part of what we did as a youth ministry. And as a result of it growing and thriving, and the youth ministry growing to over 300 teenagers on a weekly basis, uh, people began to call, saying, can we talk? One such meeting happened uh, about 2000, I think it was about 2006, and that meeting was with a, a young man named Ryan Snyder. And uh, many of you might know him as the former youth pastor that had been here for about 12 years. And uh, Ryan was sent to meet with me by Greg Heisey. And maybe you know who Greg Heisey is. He's sitting over here to my right. As uh, they were trying to figure out how to do small groups as a youth ministry, but it wasn't thriving here at LAFC. And so where do you go to find out? Well, rumor has it, there's this guy in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania that has small groups figured out for youth ministry, which began a, several sessions where Ryan and I would meet for lunch, talking about relational discipleship within the context of small groups. That was my first interaction with LAFC, and that was in 2006. I'd never been on site here, I've never observed or met the people. I've never met Greg Heisey, uh, but I'm meeting with Ryan Snyder, and he's talking about this church. All of this was built on God's work in the ministry that I led. It was interesting is that after years of not being known as somebody that knew how to coach people on relationships, now all of a sudden, I'm coaching people on relationships. So what is the change? What happens in a person's life that moves you from being known a certain way to another? And I will say, it's the grace of God. It's the grace of God that any of us go from where we were when we were younger to where we might be and where we're heading as we get older. And so I want to just start off by saying that when we talk about Daniel, what made him so significant wasn't that he had this formula by which he lived out his life. It was rooted in a relationship between him and God. And when you look at everything that happened in Daniel's life that caused him favor with kings and leaders and wise people that were so-called so enchanters, the reputation he deserved was all built on a, a soul commitment to his God. And so as we go into this today, it, we, we just want to acknowledge that this isn't about following after the formulaic aspects of Daniel's life. It's the grace of God in Daniel's life that's on display. And we're merely taking observation of how God utilized that within him. Having said that, Jeremiah 29 verses 1 to 9 is an interesting context 
Jeremiah is the prophet of the Lord. He is walking still at this time in the land of Israel. He is not in Babylon. The Babylon had conquered Jerusalem and the southern kingdom of Judah. And people had already been taken to the city of Babylon. Hence, Daniel himself is already in Babylon when this is written. But we believe it to be shortly thereafter. And it's a word from the Lord as to how to live in the land of Babylon. Since we're talking about what it means to thrive in a pagan culture, because that's why we're studying the life of Daniel, is that we don't think of American culture anymore as being Judeo-Christian and its culture and its ethos. It's just not that. It's become very post-Christian. And so what we want to look at is how does one man, one individual, one human being who's living in an extremely increasing pagan culture influence three separate kings, actually up to four, and then eventually affecting entire kingdoms. But I want to start with how Jeremiah affects Daniel. You see, Jeremiah was the contemporary prophet at the time of Daniel's life. He was the one that said that there would be uh, this, this coming uh, occupation and people being taken off into Babylon and to expect 70 years of being there. So now they're there. And I'm sure that for these princes of Israel that are now serving the king of Babylon, they're remembering many of the words that Jeremiah had said, that we have fallen in our worship of God. We've served idols. We've, we've followed after things that are not of God. And as a result, we'll come under the authority of a foreign power that does not even honor God. But yet God will use that pagan power to teach your heart what it means to align yourself with the one true God. So then they go off. They know those words from Jeremiah. But then Jeremiah sends another letter, this time to them once they're in Babylon, and this is the context. And so he's giving a direct message of the Lord, starting in verse 4. It says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters into marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if that city prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent these people, declares the Lord. So basically you have a divine mandate for how to thrive in Babylon, a foreign culture. In this case, they know that they're there because of the mistakes of King Hezekiah several uh, generations before, but they are also falling into the same paths of, of idolic worship and so on. And so God's giving them a charge that while you're under my judgment in this foreign city, I encourage you to do these things. First of all, make it your home. Make it your home for this season. Because they knew that it was going to be an end. There was already a 70-year prophecy. Daniel even refers to that in his book. So make it your home for these 70 years. You're going to be there a long time. And sustain. Be self-sustaining. Build your own gardens. Plant your own gardens. And live off of it. So in other words, make this new location your home. But do not depend on the Babylonians. So depend upon the fruits of your labor so that they, they learn how to grow things in that new culture so that they can then bring those skills back to Israel. If you become fully dependent upon Babylon uh, providing for you, then you will be of no good to return to Israel. And so God is communicating some things about being self-sustaining within this. 
He also says in verse 6, grow your families. He didn't want them leaving Babylon as a remnant. He wanted them having grown and thriving. This is not the first time you see this. When Israel, and when it's infancy, when the 12 uh, brothers ended up in Egypt, it was while in Egypt, under Egypt's protective power, that Israel grew large enough to be a nation that could conquer the promised land. And so what you have here is that God is preparing his people to go back to Israel with strength, not in weakness. And so he says, grow your families. Then an interesting verse in verse 7. He says, now pray for the city in which you inhabit. Pray for them and pray for its prosperity and peace. Because if Babylon benefits, you benefit. Now, some people might say, well, there you go. That is the prosperity gospel. God intends for us to prosper, and it's all about health and wealth. And and that's not what's being said here. God is preparing a nation to grow under the umbrella of another so that when it leaves there, it can thrive back in Israel. And so in this, it's just natural that if Babylon thrives and there's peace around Babylon, then this nation that's under its umbrella will thrive and grow. So pray for it, that it may provide that protective umbrella. And so in the same way that while we may not like all the cultural leanings of our our country in this moment, we should be praying for its continued success because under it, as a church, we can grow and succeed. So when you look at this, then it says, just to make sure that you're not thinking that, well, if you're going to be in Babylon, be Babylonian. He says in verses 8 and 9, watch out. There are many false prophets and false teachers. So therefore, you need to apply yourself to the study of scriptures, making sure you're rightly following after God and not following to the right or left that the Babylonian culture will definitely pull at your heartstrings to do. So that's the charge. This letter was received in Babylon. I'm sure Daniel knew about it. So he has now been given this charge from God, from the prophet Jeremiah. I'm to embrace living here. I am to make sure that I'm not dependent upon this culture for dictating my sustaining life. I am also to make sure my family grows. Now, in Daniel's case, we know that he himself was not able to grow a family because he had been emasculated. But for the rest of the people, it was an encouragement to grow and to thrive there. And then, yes, praying for the peace and prosperity of Babylon. Now, you see in Daniel's prayers, if you read the prayers in Daniel, you'll see that he does pray for Babylon, but his heart longs for the the long-term home. He prays to Jerusalem, and he prays for its peace and for its restoration, while all the while learning to be able to serve in the Babylonian culture. He does not fall prey to the teachings of the Babylonian teachers and wisdom people. In fact, he calls out them as being false gods. So while we can make a case that Daniel effectively became Babylonian, he became Babylonian with a savvy mind and savvy heart and following its protocols, but not falling trapped to its gods. And so that's where we can learn a lot from Daniel on what it, how his level of persuasion was able to persuade leaders above him to go in different directions than what they were inclined to do. And initially, Daniel begins this with no reputation. There is no reputation when Daniel comes into Babylon. He is simply known as a captive prince of Israel. So in Daniel chapter 1, if we could turn there, in the Bibles we handed out, it's page 826. I want to highlight the growth of Daniel's reputation and therefore the level of persuasion he began to grow with as he lived in this Babylonian culture. And you'll see that in this, he becomes a very wise and discerning man of Babylon, but he himself does not embrace the pagan aspects of Babylon. So beginning in Daniel chapter 1, we have the situation where they're being told to eat like the Babylonians. 
and that would have been offensive to the Jews. So he creatively comes up with a plan by which he's able to communicate, well, can we test this with our diet and see if we look healthier by the diet God's given us from Israel or if, we, if those who are following the diet of the Babylonians are healthier. So as a result, you see that at the end of this 10-day um, test in verse 15, it says at the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So as a result, the guard took away their choice food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kind. At the end of time, set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So as a result, they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. So in this situation, you see slaves that we know as Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Belteshazzar in their Babylonian names. But these four princes of Israel came in with no reputation. So how is it that they go from no reputation, just simply being in training for serving the king, to all of a sudden, not only are they serving the king, but the king acknowledges that they're 10 times more effective than his own Babylonian enchanters. When you look at what happened to cause them to go there, it, was, it began with one important point, was that Daniel chose to be committed to God's principles over the principles of his new kingdom. So he established God as number one in his life. It, it, the, his worship of God, his interpretation as to who God was, he, he remained committed to God. And then as a result... It affected his decision-making. So in this, God then blessed him by being wise enough to suggest a test. And God then helped them succeed. And then God blessed them as an, with the ability to show greater wisdom and discernment than anybody else within the king's wise men group. And as a result, take a notice of that. Now at this point, they're not given any authority they're not given any position outside of being within the group of wise men. However, when you start showing a reputation of something that's greater than the other wise men, your word starts being heard more than others. So then from there, Daniel chapter 2, we have another situation where, again, there is a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, the king. And, and he asked for his enchanters to actually reveal the dream and then interpret the dream. This was seen as, as we've talked about in the last few weeks, seen as an impossibility. Even the, the head of the wise enchanter said, what you have asked for, Nebuchadnezzar, is impossible. Only gods can do that. Well, you see in this situation that uh, Daniel then is given the opportunity to then appeal to the king because the king was frustrated and to the point where he said, all right, I'm starting over. I'm killing all the wise men and I'm going to recruit some new ones. Well, this is where Daniel panics because that would include him. And, and in his, in his uh, urgency, what he does is he goes to the king and says, king, give me some time and I'll seek with the Lord for what you seek. So then Daniel goes back to his friends and he says, we got to pray. We need to pray for the Lord's direction to reveal this dream and ultimately spare all of us, including our pagan peers. As we see from verses 45 to 48, uh, that God actually does reveal the dream. Daniel gives the interpretation of the dream. And then you can see the effect that it had upon 
the, the relationship between Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. So uh, starting in the middle of verse 45, where it says, the, this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking. He says, the great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. This dream is true and its interpretations are trustworthy. Then Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate uh, before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished on him many gifts. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. So you have this situation where, again, Daniel's put into a threatening situation, and, and what does he do? He prays. He starts with, uh, to petition the king and saying, can you give us time? And then after being granted that time, he goes before God and says, God, reveal this. You are the revealer of great dreams. Receive, give it to us so that we may pass it on to him. So Daniel's confidence was not in himself. It was in God, God alone. He'd shown in Daniel chapter one that my principles, my life is aligned with God and God alone. And now in the moment where his life is at risk, he realizes his only rescue is God alone. And God provides. And as a result, Daniel does go into position now. Now no longer is he just the wisest of the wise men. He's now over the province of Babylon. He's like that of a mayor or even governor in this very influential city of the world at this time. And this all happens because, again, he chose to follow after God and sought and relied upon his direction, not upon his own strength. Then in Daniel chapter 3, those that Daniel had selected to be near him, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they end up showing that they too are serving after the Lord and the Lord alone and their confidence being in the Lord. And as a result of them and, uh, honoring the Lord, God spared them from the great fire, as we learned a few couple weeks ago. So therefore, as a result, Daniel's influence. Now, Daniel's not mentioned in this chapter in regards to that whole fiery furnace uh, moment with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in those positions. And it's noticed by the king because of their positional authority that have been assigned by Daniel. So as a result of their success in this moment, what do you think that meant for Daniel's success? If the people you appointed end up showing that they too have the same level of power and authority because of their God that they worship. It gave Daniel greater opportunity to appoint leaders in Babylon. So this as a, as a growing persuasion is that Daniel not only is wise and able to interpret dreams, Daniel is not only committed to his God and that God is powerful, but Daniel also knows how to appoint people that are as successful as he is and are as dedicated to God as he is. And so Daniel's reputation has grown and therefore his ability to persuade is growing with it. But it's all rooted, again, in his unrelenting commitment to God himself. So then you see in Daniel uh, chapter four, uh, a different situation. This is towards the end of King Nebuchadnezzar's life now. And the king has another vision. And this vision is very disturbing when he goes to ask Daniel, what does it mean? And Daniel, God gives the meaning of the, the vision, but it's not good news for the king because it's confronting the king for all of his pridefulness and his self-worship. And Daniel even pleads with the king to turn from his pride and worship the God of the universe that has already presented himself multiple times to Nebuchadnezzar through the testimony of Daniel and his friends. But the king did not listen. In fact, the king became even more arrogant when he stood on this, this place and overlooked the kingdom and says, look at what my hands 
have accomplished. And then the meaning of the dream comes true, and, and Nebuchadnezzar begins to live like an animal for seven years. He was chased out of the city and hidden from everybody's sight because it was so humiliating what God was doing in, Dan, in Nebuchadnezzar's life. At the end of this time, you'll see that when he, he finally looks up as, as this wild beast looking up to God, he finally declares God as God and that he is not. And the end result is that in this moment, Daniel is able to oversee the coming back to the Lord or coming to the Lord for the first time of the king. See, up to this point, Nebuchadnezzar had just simply said, this is the God of gods, the Lord of kings. But he never declared him as the one true God. But you'll see in Daniel chapter 4, verse uh, 37, that it says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So Daniel's persuasion is that he was able to even confront a king, which in that time and age, you wouldn't want to do. Because if you angered the king in a moment, he could have you cast out of the kingdom or even worse, killed forever coming and calling the king prideful. But Daniel was willing to speak the hard truth because he knew it had come from God. So his commitment to God, again, was over and above the protection of his own life. We'll see that in, in Daniel chapter 5, Nebuchadnezzar's son becomes king, and it was a very short period of time. And already he's showing that he is extremely prideful, even more so than his father. And in this short period of time, God becomes very disappointed in, in Belshazzar, which was his name, and God writes on the wall a personal message to King Belshazzar. But nobody understood what the words meant that were on that wall, and, and it was only then that the king's wife says, there was this man who served your father, who could interpret dreams and was wiser than anybody else. You see, when a, when a new king comes into play, even though it was a son of, ne of Nebuchadnezzar, usually the son would cast out all his father's wise people and he would bring in his own cronies, his own people to speak what he wants to hear in his own ears. But what I find interesting is that Daniel, at this point, has, is probably no longer the governor of Babylon because Belshazzar has appointed a new one. And, and, and Daniel's just become a slave again. He's just a no man uh, in the midst of a country that is not his own. But yet, somebody remembers his reputation and says, you know what? This man can help you. Belshazzar calls Daniel into the room and says, I will make you the third highest ranking individual in the entire kingdom of Babylon if you'll just tell me what those three words mean. And Daniel said, you can keep your gold, you can keep your positions, but I will tell you the dream or the meaning of those words. And as a result, you see that in Daniel chapter 5, he was able to give the meaning of the words and it still happened. Belshazzar's command to Daniel was that he was going to be clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around Daniel's neck and he was placed and proclaimed as the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. So Daniel goes from, in Daniel chapter 1, being just merely a slave, being prepared to serve the king, but of no influence whatsoever, to becoming the most influential of the wise man, to then becoming the head of the wise man, including becoming the governor of Babylon, then stepping out of that position because king dies. So Daniel is basically a nobody again, only to be brought back up to the third highest ranking position in the kingdom, all because of a reputation of faithfulness. So what do you see here in this moment is another transition and now a new king comes in. But you kind of get the sense that this new king, Darius, kept Daniel in his position. But there were many that were becoming very jealous of Daniel's influence and his persuasion 
because it was clear that he was empowered by something greater than himself and none of them had it. So they figured out a way that they can make Daniel go away by the very worship of his God because they found nothing that they could accuse Daniel of in integrity or character. So they realized the only way we could ever win with Daniel is to create an illegal situation for him to worship his own God. Because that's the only thing they knew they could catch Daniel in is he would not violate his worship of his own God. And as a result, they created the rule with, with the king not realizing what it was doing. It was going to entrap Daniel. But then you see Daniel is, escaped, is able to escape that night, spending the days, the night with the lions and was able to live beyond that. And again, Darius, the king, says, Daniel, may your God cause you escape. May your God prevail and may you live to the next day. And then when he sees that, Daniel, did your God spare you? Daniel says, yes, he did. So Daniel maintained his role as leader within King Darius's lifetime. So now it's three kings. And then the fourth king is Cyrus. And Cyrus hears from Daniel the need to go back to Jerusalem. It's part of the journey is that now Daniel is speaking on behalf of the return of his own people. It's now 70 years later and Daniel's likely in his 80s at this point. But he continues to have influence and persuasion with the kings. Is it because he had, was a man of great words? Was it because he was a man of, of being able to manipulate kings' hearts? Or was it because there was something deeper going on in Daniel that caused him to stand among those that were in a pagan society? And so I give you seven keys that are just coming out of this. And I, I, I know the, the magic numbers to use three takeaways, right? And I'm about to give you seven, but I think you'll see them as being interchangeable and connected. So bear with me. And so far, it's a miracle I'm still talking right now. I can't. But uh, so here we go. Just looking at this, I would say the first and most important key to Daniel's ability to persuade and influence kings and kingdoms is that he was not seeking the love of the king, but rather he was in love with the king of kings. He had a deep love and worship of God that transcended any of the things that happened around him was what was made him tick, which is why in Daniel 6 that the people realized the only way we we're going to ever cause Daniel to go away is somehow create a divide between him and his worship of God and the worship of the king. So for Daniel... It was about a love relationship and a worship of God that transcended any fear, any opportunities, even opportunities to succeed with uh, the rules of a pagan society. He would always dismiss those things and say, it's about my love and worship of God. Number two, he aligned himself with the principles of that God, not with the principles of his culture. This is really important in light of Jeremiah's charge. Jeremiah said, grow thrive, flourish in Babylon, but he did not tell them to become Babylonians in their worship. In fact, you'll see that as he was telling them to thrive and to pray for Babylon, it was, it was all under the context is to make sure that their worship was still worshiping in the right place when he says, avoid the false teacher, avoid the false prophet. So they, they were, Daniel thrived, he fulfilled what was being said of Jeremiah that you pray for your kingdom that you're serving under, but you don't become like that kingdom. So he aligned his life to God's principles, not the Babylonian culture. Number three, trusting God for the outcomes. In all the stories that we have here, there were multiple times where Daniel's life was at stake or his friends' lives were at stake. They never knew what the outcomes were gonna be. They just continued to worship God, period. And they trusted God for the outcomes. As what was said here two weeks ago and referring to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it says, we will never bend the knee and worshiping another God. We will worship God and God will spare us. God will save us. But if he does not, 
we'll still worship God. So there was this trust for the outcomes that superseded any fear that was brought their way. Number four, you see that Daniel surrounded himself. He made sure that it, with every promotion that he had, he brought along his friends that were as equally committed to the worship of God as he was. It's much more helpful in a society like ours to have relationships that will speak into your heart that is different from what the world would speak into your heart. I would not do well in America's culture if I didn't have people that were speaking into my life. I would be a, as easy to succumb to the culture of greed and envy and pride that, that all is part of the pursuit of happiness in America. I'd be just as susceptible as anyone else. But if it wasn't for people that, got near, that get near to my heart regularly, I would be likely as gift, uh, propelled into such a lifestyle of Americanism as anybody else. So I must surround myself with godly people who are willing to speak truths into my life and that would be willing to hear from me as well. So number five is this, that when God calls you to speak into somebody else's life, what you see with Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is exactly what Peter says in his gospels, uh, his epistles in the New Testament. That when you're speaking into someone else's life, do so with gentleness and respect. You never see Daniel disrespect the king. He was very careful to respect the culture of Babylon. He just didn't become the culture of Babylon. And so when he spoke the truth, he didn't, because of his reputation, he didn't have to be bombastic. He was already somebody to be listened to because of his reputation. So with gentleness and respect, he spoke. And then I would say that Daniel showed incredible proficiency in knowing the culture around him. He was a proficient in understanding Babylonian rules. He is proficient in Babylonian protocols. And as a result, he knew how to reach Babylonians. Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 23. It says, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many people as, pop- as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I become like one under the law, though myself am not under that law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I become like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I become weak to win the weak. I become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. So I do all this, for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Paul basically says, if I'm going to be in a godless culture, I'm going to master what it means to understand their heart and their mind so that as I engage them, I can reach them for the sake of the gospel. You see, Nebuchadnezzar became a follower of God and a worshiper of God because of the consistent truthfulness and worship of Daniel. He was willing to abide by a lot of the Babylonian rules, but never at the cost of his worship and his commitment to divine principles. So I look at you and I, and I say, can we not become masters of our own culture? Not becoming like the culture, but in our understanding of it. Not so that we can become great at it, but so that some might actually come to know God in the midst of this culture. You see, that's the whole point, is that we're called to reach others so that they may know and have a relationship with God as we do. So lastly, the key is this. On top of all that we've said, is that whatever Daniel did in his worship of God, in his living out the principles of God, in his serving as a governor, in his serving as a wise man, in his serving as a friend, he always did everything with the highest level of excellence. He was not lazy. He applied himself fully in his worship and in his service. I believe if we apply these truths 
out of the relationship that you and I have with God, the reputation that God begins to do in you will allow you the opportunity to see what God would do among you and through you. At this point, I want to draw us back to the cross. You see, we're on this side of the cross, and it says that if we have a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, we're given the spirit of God by which he can utilize us to reach other people. And the cross is the symbol of that work. And it's through that that God could then enable us to be a blessing to other people so that some might come to know him. We don't find our confidence in ourselves or in our own reputations, but rather we find our confidence in the saving, gracious work of Jesus Christ. So with that, we end this service with communion, acknowledging that any reputation we carry that gives us opportunity to influence is born out of the work of God in our lives. We're going to approach this table with a little bit more time to reflect. So what I would like you to do is that we're going to hand out both elements. So hold on to the bread, and then we'll eventually pass out the cup, and then there will come a point where we'll encourage you to take, but we want you to reflect on how God can change your reputation and how God has changed your reputation. And then saying, you know, Lord, am I committed so fully that my worship of you affects every decision I make. And then realize the grace comes from this table. It was through the blood and hard work of Christ that you and I merely have to by faith receive. And God begins his life-changing, transformational work in your life and my life. So receive the elements, wait, and we'll all take together as we go into this. So at this time, we're going to be, we're just going to have the music play. There's going to be no words. It's an opportunity for you to reflect upon the saving grace of God upon your life. So if you've given of yourself to Jesus, this is an opportunity to just be grateful and thankful. So I'll remain silent for a period of time, and then we'll all take the elements together. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, they had already had a meal together, but he asked for the bread to be brought back up to him. He held up the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Take this in remembrance of me. So we do so now. Then Jesus took the cup and he held it up before him and said, this is my blood. It's a new covenant. The old covenant that was just temporal when they would sacrifice animals for a temporal covering of sin, he declares that there's now a permanent covenant, a permanent sacrifice that's going to happen. It's going to be his body so that all past, present, and future sins will be atoned for in one act by a sinless man. So we say thank you to Jesus, who as man and as God, submitted himself in, in obedience to the Father and allowed death to come to him so that you and I might have life. That's what this blood represents. So let's take together in gratefulness.
Jesus, we are thankful for your obedience, for your worship of your Father. Undeterred commitment, just as we also observe in Daniel's life. But you were doing it not for having any guilt, because Daniel was not a perfect man. He wasn't sinless. He was going to die and did die. But for you, death was not due you. And yet you chose to submit yourself to that so that you could create a people all your own. So we say thank you, Jesus, for that love, for that care. We are truly grateful. Amen. So in Jeremiah 29, at the conclusion of the, of the letter, message from God delivered by Jeremiah, he concludes with this statement. It says, you, will be my people, and I will be your God. The whole point of 70 years of captivity for those Israelites was so that they'd understand that they have a loving God that's worthy of their trust. The whole point of our lives is to discover that same love. Jesus says, I've come to draw people unto myself. All those that the Father has given me. And so we're privileged on this side of the cross to know that God went to the greatest lengths to display his love for us, that he would send his own son, Jesus Christ, to die for your sins and my sins so that we can know the grace of God and become a child of God. If you would like to pray with someone, we'll have people underneath the cross to my right, your left, that would be glad to pray with you. But we don't want you walking out of here not knowing that there is grace at the cross. Your reputation might stink right now, but God wants to transform that and change it because his reputation through you can be a game changer. And God can actually make you become influential in an area that you know you're humanly weak because God is ultimately strong. With that having been said, let God be your God so that you can be his people. Amen.